the church, if you would open to Psalms 121. Psalm 121, we're going to cover a lot more than just uh, this psalm today, uh, but I want to just read this for us to start us. Word of God says, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so, Father, what glorious promises. And Lord, there's so much we're going to cover in just a short time. We just pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and teach us those things that you want us to most see here. We rely on you as the the teacher, the illuminator, the one who can actually not just inform our minds, but change our lives which is what we really need. And so, Father, we pray that You would do all these things for the glory of Your Son and for our eternal good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I am uh, going to attempt something very difficult. Uh, Maybe you could say impossible. I guess you can judge that by the end. Um, I'm going to try to cover 15 uh, psalms all in one sermon. And uh, the reason I want to do this is because this gives a historical background to Palm Sunday, to Christ's entrance into uh, Jerusalem on that donkey. If we get, if we, if we will actually uh, not just think about Jesus entering 2,000 years ago, but go back about 600 to 1,000 years before that and think about these Psalms of Ascent, uh, the, the meaning of Christ entering Jerusalem will really, really come out uh, clearly for us. Uh, some of you all know when studying Psalms, uh, it's really important to remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with poetry, uh, specifically Jewish poetry, which is not Jewish law or Jewish history, uh, which we would read more literally. Uh, with poetry, it's poetry. All right? It's like songs. You listen to a Beatles song. On the radio, take these broken wings and learn to fly. That's not to be taken literally or you're not going to understand the song. Um, there's poetic license with, with songs and with poetry. And so, for example, in, in Psalms 121, the sun shall not strike you by day. Isn't a promise that Israelites won't get sunburned. All right? It's a promise that God will keep them and be the shade at their right hand. It's, it's poetry. We need to remember that as we, as we look at this. Uh, not long ago, I was in this, uh, a public library, and I, when I go to public libraries, I'm, I'm always looking for books that aren't printed. I'm a little bit of a nerd that way. You look for books that are no longer in print and find some obscure book. And I found one on uh, the Psalms of Ascent, and it was mainly dealing with the Jewish nature of the Psalms of Ascent, kind of the Jewish background. But toward the end of this book, it had a little quote from... 1665, this uh, Italian reformer, Giorgio 
Loradio, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he said this, there are degrees to the holy mountain and high place of heaven to advance us near not only the eight beatitudes or the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, but he that in this valley of vision knows not how to pass from strength to strength will surely take the wrong way to Zion. These are called steps of ascent because whoever intends to make use of them must make his advancement under God for his climbing up by grace. And so these steps of ascent or psalms of ascent or songs of ascent are progressive so that it's like you're on a journey. And I'm, I'm going to just use the word journey today. I'll, I apologize. I don't like the word either. Um, I don't want to trivialize it like that, but in the, in the true kind of historical sense, journey is what this is talking about. It starts really far from God, and in this journey, you move closer to God. So in Psalms 120, you're far away from God. By Psalms 134, you're with God. And it's literally a pilgrimage through these Psalms to God. It's very beautiful the way uh, that it's laid out and written. And so... Uh, it's important to remember that as we go through. So I'm not going to give an outline. I just want to walk through uh, 15 psalms progressively, move forward, say a few things along the way. We'll start in Psalm 120. Again, the psalmist is far away from God in, in, in Psalm or in verse 1. The psalmist kind of at his lowest point, it says, in my distress. That's where you find God. Or, or it might be better to say that's where God finds you. Always in a place of distress. That's where every pilgrimage to God begins. A place of distress. Abraham started distressed as an idol worshiper when God found him. Isaac was distressed when Abraham was about to sacrifice him to God and he was wondering if he would live. Jacob was distressed when he was fearing if his Brother Esau would come and kill him. Joseph was distressed when he was thrown in the pit and then later in prison before he got to the palace. And Israel, the nation, was distressed when they were slaves in Egypt and they cried out to the Lord before he brought deliverance. Distress is where every pilgrimage to God begins. You have to understand how bankrupt spiritually you are how lost you are before you can be found that's what the psalmist is letting us see here he says in verse one in my distress i called to the lord and he answered me which shows i think at one level you can never be too far away from god where he doesn't hear you when you cry to him but at the same time just because you cry to him and he hears you doesn't mean you necessarily know where you're going yet and a lot of people don't know where to go, but they just know, I don't want to be where I am right now, which is what this psalmist says. In verse 5, he says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and dwell among the tents of Kedar. He doesn't know where he, where he needs to go. He just knows, I don't want to be here. This isn't where I want my sojourning to be. And as the psalm goes into Psalm 121, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And you say, well, that's still kind of vague. What does he mean? And especially, it's even more vague in that context because back in that day, on the hills were pagan temples to false deities. 
on the tops of mountains. And so this is more vague than it even sounds to us. But he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, from Yahweh, from the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth. And again, it's interesting, those who've studied uh, ancient pagan kind of polytheistic religions, especially those ones that were rooted in uh, Greek mythology, many times the gods or the deities were asleep when you'd call on them. Or they were too drunk or too lazy or too tired to hear or put up with mere mortals. And it says here, He who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. This is a different God. By the time you get to Psalm 122, verse 1, this ascent is not just the vagueness of the hills, but he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, which we know is in verse 3, Jerusalem, a city that is bound firmly together, to which it says, look at this phrase, the tribes go up, and there it is. That's, that's what this is about. Go up. The tribes go up. The go up part is, uh, there's a little bit of debate on what it means that these tribes are going up um, because the temple in Jerusalem had 15 steps up to the temple. And so some said, oh, there's 15 psalms of ascent because each psalm represents a step going up the temple into Jerusalem. There's another theory, and others say going up means that you're going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is up, and it's surrounded by valleys, and so no matter what direction you come to Jerusalem, you must go down and then go up. And I, I tend to think both those sound quite legitimate, and uh, many scholars do, and they say, I think both things are in view. This is what the going up, these 12 tribes of Israel are doing able-bodied men three times a year would go up to Jerusalem to make these sacrifices at the temple for the sins of their family. And think how, I mean, just men for, for just a minute, I mean, think of the responsibility on your shoulders as a man to take time off work, whatever financial uh, money was needed to purchase an animal that you needed to take and, and journey and go make this sacrifice on your own behalf and for sake of your family. To bear that responsibility? It's no small thing what they were doing. And, and you would have started alone. You know, you would have left your house and you would be slowly journeying toward Jerusalem and then you would begin to gather with others. Others coming from their homes and you get closer to Jerusalem, you, you enter into packs. You enter into tribes and more people. And it would have started off silent so that you're maybe quoting these psalms of ascent or singing them alone, but as you get closer, you're singing with others. And, and this chorus begins to resound of these psalms of ascent as you get closer to Jerusalem. And I think this shows us something symbolic about the Christian pilgrimage, is that it's meant to be journeyed or walked in song with others. God intends for us to sing on our way to Zion. We sing when we gather. That's why when we get together at city groups, now every time this church gathers, we sing. I don't know if you notice that. 
We should be doing that. I think that's significant. When God's people get together, we sing. We have something to sing about. I know for my kids, uh, those of us who have kids in, in Christian schools, they go to school and they sing. They sing when they're home and they sing when they're at church. All our kids know is singing. It's just, this is all they know. It's, a, it's an awesome thing. And I can tell y'all, guys, the, the strongest churches uh, don't minimize singing. And the strongest believers don't mumble out lyrics. Because they know I'm not singing because I feel like singing. I'm singing so that I will feel like singing. But we don't, we don't sing because we don't have sorrows. We sing to drown out the sorrows with transcendent truth. Which is what singing does for our heart and the hearts of others around us. When we're in the midst of God's people singing loud with confidence. It's not a surprise that in, you know, when you're preparing soldiers for battle, you have them sing together. It does something at the heart level, at the psyche level, at the emotional level to be surrounded by people singing confident lyrics. This is not accidental how God plans this. And I think that's why it's somewhat tragic in our day that music is something of a consumer uh, product. You know, for the individual, you just listen on iTunes or, or Spotify or whatever platform you just, just, just for me. This is for me. This is my playlist, right? And that's fine. But music originally had a greater meaning. It was for the edification of the church primarily. It was for the worship of God with his people. This is in large part why we have music. And there's a context all this is happening in. This psalmist is not just in the midst of ease of life. You say, yeah, but, you know, easy to sing on a journey. You're kind of walking through fields and stuff. My life is hard. Well, this psalmist's life is hard. I'm going to, you know, as I was looking at this, it was amazing. The holistic treatment of the psyche and, and, and of uh, the emotional life of, of, of this person that's being described here. I mean, every range of human experience, the the types you want and the types you try to avoid are all here. So the emotions we don't want, and I just went through this and pulled out some words, anxiety, hate, anger, fear, affliction, shame, pride, tears, weeping, and then this kind of bored, lazy category called contempt or slumber. And then all the emotions we do want, joy, gladness, laughter, shouts of joy, peace, love. And so you have this wide range of human emotion, positive and negative, mixed with these different human experiences like dreaming, sleeping, work, toil, eating, warring against enemies, being warred against by enemies, and and the near constant relational opposition that he's experiencing. And then God in the midst of this being his protector, being his provider, sustaining him uh, in the journey. And kind of a side note here, it's important to um, remember the context. This is during or right after the Babylonian exile, right after the Babylonian exile. Remember Israel, because of their sin, became slaves in in Babylon uh, for 70 years. And then they were eventually released out of Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and revival broke out. Remember that? A revival broke out in Jerusalem under uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, King Josiah. This revival breaks out. 
And he starts talking about this in Psalm 126. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And I think that's just a reminder that God's people, we do know what joy is in corporate worship. We do. I find that to be a normal experience of a Christian is to have some measure of joy in corporate worship. I don't get surprised when Christians come to me sometimes. Some of you have said, you know, oftentimes I don't feel like coming to church. Maybe today you didn't feel like coming or I don't feel like going to city group, but I'm always glad I do because I leave with some measure of restored joy. I don't go, oh my goodness, really? I'm like, yeah, it's normal. That's how it works. That's, that's normal, that's uh, normative, but this right here, what this psalmist is describing is, is not normative or normal, this is supernatural. This is revival, is what he's remembering. And most of us have not ever really tasted this level of revival. This is what uh, Paul says when he talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory. The, 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 the level of joy that a believer can experience from God by the Spirit, most of us have, have not experienced this type of revival joy. This is Pentecost, this is the Protestant Reformation and the Great Awakening, this is the Hebrews Revival in the Isle of Lewis in Scotland, this is the Great Welsh Revival, this is what happened in Babylon or I'm sorry, coming out of Babylon in Jerusalem that he's recounting. And I don't know how many of y'all have studied uh, revivals historically. I did, an, I did a lot of study back a number of years ago on revivals. And it's interesting that they always are birthed either with one individual, maybe a group of just a few, or a whole church or larger group distressed and calling out on the Lord. And then it comes. It's always the pattern. And I I think that is what this psalmist is remembering. He says in verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. So Christ was a man of sorrows first before he's full of joy in heaven. He, He enters Jerusalem. If we were to read the rest of that passage we read a minute ago, he entered Jerusalem and then he wept for Jerusalem before he ascended to the heavenly Jerusalem. The tears always precede the joy, always. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. And so I think the lesson that we need to get is the highest highs that that we could want emotionally always are preceded by low lows. In fact, I would say you can't get to the high highs or to the joys you desire unless you go through some very dark, painful, difficult days. It is necessary, always. And again, the the imagery here of Jerusalem shows us that. God put Jerusalem up on this hill, calls it the city of joy, the city of laughter. Calls it that, and then says, I'm going to put valleys around it from every angle so that if you want to get up there, you have to go down first. You You can't get that 
without some measure of difficulty or trial. This is the Christian life, is it not? This isn't just it for Israel. This is how the pilgrimage to God works. This is how everything that we deep down desire works. And this is what, this is what it tells us. For the pilgrim, the Christian, uh, you should never lose hope. You should always keep walking. Because even when you go down, if you, as long as you keep walking, eventually you'll get through that and you'll begin to ascend and go up. So don't stop walking. Never stop walking. Because you will reach Jerusalem. That's the lesson for us. Now, as it gets into Psalm 127, it may seem a little bit out of place. It's not. Uh, This is something of a primer on covenant theology, if you want a category theologically where this goes. But look at 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Okay, now again, we're dealing with poetry here, so you're not literally building a house. House is representative of a place. Maybe it says later here, a city. I think those are interchanged. A nation, Israel is referred to here. I think this is the idea. Covenant context. All of this is about covenant. And in the Old Covenant, Israel was in covenant with God as a nation state. So that's why you keep reading in these Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 128.6, Peace be upon Israel. Which, by the way, uh, isn't America and isn't Rome or ancient Greece, no matter how prosperous a nation or blessed a nation might seem to be, it is not Israel in covenant with God. In the Old Covenant, additionally, God's blessing on Israel was often mediated through the head of the home, through the, the, the covenant head, the Father. So look at Psalm 128.3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house your children will be like olive shoots around your table behold thus shall the man be blessed who fears the lord so the wife and the kids are blessed if 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 the man fears the lord if the if the if the leader of that home is god fearing a blessing will come to the wife and the kids. This is somewhat like what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, when he says the unbelieving wife will be made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So it's not saying that the unbelieving wife or the children are saved because the father is holy or God-fearing. It is saying they are holy in the sense that they are set apart. They will experience some measure of blessing because of the believing father. Now, why are they not truly in the covenant because of their father? Well, uh, because the way you enter into covenant, old or new covenant, is by faith. We're talking about the true benefits of the covenant. The true blessings of the covenant only come by faith. Here it is in uh, chapter 128, verse 1 of Psalms. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Not just blessed is everyone who's a Jew because you were born a Jew. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Or Psalm 125, 1. 
Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So it doesn't just say, um, if, there's a, if there's a father who trusts in the Lord, then everyone will abide forever. It says you abide forever if you trust the Lord. We saw this in Ezekiel 18. That each one will die for his own sins, not the sins of a father. Remember we saw this a few weeks ago? And then each will live, not for their own sins, but, or not for the, the righteousness of their father, but their own righteousness. And so faith doesn't save, a man's faith doesn't save his children or his wife, but it does massively impact them. And listen to this, I pulled out some statistics that I think are helpful, uh, some research to further confirm this. Uh, Promise Keepers Baptist Press put this together a few years ago, that if a father doesn't go to church, even if the wife does, the child has a 1 in 50 chance they will become a, a, a regular worshiper in the future. If a father does go regularly, regardless if the mother does, there's a three-fourth chance that the child will as an adult. Another study uh, on Bible studies, or we could call it a, a city group or a catechism, something outside of the corporate gathering, said that if both parents attend, so a, a, in our context, a church service like this and a city group, then uh, 72% of the children will when they grow up. When only a father attends, 55% of the children will attend when they grow up. If only a mother does, 15% will when they grow up. And if neither parent does, 6% of the children will when they are grown. And then this survey was even uh, maybe even more surprising. It says, if a child is the first in the household to become a Christian there is a 3.5% probability that the rest of the family will follow. If the mother's the first to become a Christian, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the family will follow. And if the father is the first to become a Christian, there's a 93% chance that the rest of the family will follow. Confirming what I think this proverb is saying, that if the father fears the Lord, the rest of the family will be blessed. Not automatically saved, but greatly blessed. And far more likely that they will grow up and worship the Lord. Now, guys, I know in the day in which we live, some of y'all may even be thinking this word. That sounds like patriarchy. And here's what I'd say. It is. The Bible teaches that. That's, what it, that's what's being taught right here. Psalm 128.3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that the, the woman doesn't greatly influence her home either. We have Proverbs 31 that clearly says, a God-fearing woman, her husband will be praised at the gates. Her children will rise up and call her blessed. So obviously, a God-fearing woman is massively influential in the home as well. It's not to diminish that. But guys, if, if, if a man does not take this pilgrimage seriously, if his, let me say it like this, if his wife has to say, say to him, Honey, when are you going to go get the animal and make the trip to Jerusalem for us? That man should not be surprised 
if his children grow up and they don't take the trip to Jerusalem for their family? Psalm 129 reminds us covenant isn't, even with all the stuff I just said, isn't ultimately about our success or failure as heads of our homes, but of Christ's success as the head. Look at Psalm 129 verse 1. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now the Jewish commentators will say that's talking about Israel. When they were slaves in Egypt, their backs were shredded to pieces in their slavery. And I do think that that is true. But the best Christian commentators will say that you take a passage like this and you, and you can have multi-layered meanings so that it can first relate to Israel and their slavery and it can also point forward to Christ whose back would be plowed in those hours leading up to the crucifixion. Verse 1, they, they have afflicted me from my youth, it says. Isn't that what Christ experienced when he was born? And then he had to immediately run for shelter because they were trying to kill him and they had to flee to Egypt until Herod was dead and they could come back? Isn't verse 3, the plowers have plowed my back ultimately about Christ's flogging and beating and torture before the crucifixion? This is where I think this passage where you begin to see the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem and these Psalms of Ascent begin to merge. Because Christ is not entering Jerusalem to offer a sacrificial lamb for Mary and for Joseph and for his brothers and sisters. He is entering into Jerusalem to become a sacrificial lamb for his bride and to gather Children for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, all the Psalms of Ascent are ultimately about Christ and His pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That He took for His bride, for for God's elect children. If He doesn't ascend the hill, there is no pilgrimage for you or us or any of the Israelites. None of it matters. If this is not ultimately pointing to Christ. And so every pilgrimage, older, new covenant, is utterly and completely dependent on Christ entering Jerusalem. And this is why Jesus kept saying in the Gospels repeatedly, I must go to Jerusalem. That's where, that's where this has to lead to. And he knew this, Matthew 16, 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests, scribes, and be killed and on the third day raised. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going. This is why John 12, what we just read a moment ago, the next day, that is Sunday, that is today, Palm Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches, palm, uh, palm trees. Why, why palm branches? Because in uh, ancient days, palm branches waved royalty. You would have, you've seen movies and they would wave the palm branches on the king. And they said, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then Jesus found this young donkey set on it as it was written. So why is he riding on a donkey? Is this just the closest thing he could find to ride on? No. Zechariah 9.9 said that the king of Zion would come riding on a donkey. And Jesus knew that, and so he grabbed the donkey to ride in. To fulfill the prophecy. And, and, and to ride in to fulfill the prophecy as the patriarchal head of Israel. Of the church. And then Jesus said in, in 16, John 12, 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. I want to begin to close by looking at these five last Psalms of Ascent. Um, The way that all these are ordered, I spent a lot of time this week, I just put away all commentaries and all other people and just sat with these and just, how do these things work? You know, there's 15 of them. How do they fit together? And I don't know every single reason, and I'm sure if I would have read more, I could have found out people that said things that would be helpful to say here. But um, it does seem that Psalm 129, if we see Christ there, that there, he, Christ becomes something of a doorway into Psalm 130, 131, 132, 133, 134. In other words, you can't make it in your pilgrimage to these last five Psalms unless you enter through Psalm 129 and find Christ. He's something of a, uh, a door to enter into. It's very significant. He he is a a sort of rite of passage to continue the journey. And so when you enter Christ, this doorway, you can continue to move toward heaven. And then these three things will be true of you. So Psalm 130 to 134, you will find these three things true of you. Number one, forgiveness. Look at Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my voice. My pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Man, if you think of nothing else this week in relation to what Christ did in Jerusalem, to just think of forgiveness. He should mark iniquities. Who could stand? And some of y'all mentioned last week when we talked about uh, our testimony and how Christ has saved us, you know, especially if we're young, not just from the sins we committed when we were two and three and five, as if that was all the sin that he saved us from. He was also saving us from all the sin we would commit after we were saved, which for most of us is way more sin than he had to save us from when we were young. And if he, if, if, if God would mark iniquities, especially the ones you've committed as a Christian, who could stand? But with Him there's forgiveness that He may be feared. 
Now, what is the connection between fearing Him and His forgiveness? Well, just think a long time about the cross. And that the Father put His Son there for our sake. And, and maybe you'll begin to learn to fear the Lord. There's a connection between Christ and what He did for our forgiveness and us fearing Him in the most glorious way. Now, Psalm 131 says something very interesting here. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child with it. Uh, a weaned child is my soul within me. When, when you think about, man, if we could just, I wish we could get an image of this, a, a real visual of Christ on the donkey entering into Jerusalem. And as Kent mentioned a few times, not as a warrior with his sword ready to take down Roman enemies and, and get to the throne, but humble on a donkey and just hear people genuinely in faith going, he's the king, he will inaugurate his kingdom. And then the utter shock that he would do it through a cross. It's bizarre. But when you really get that, when, when the gospel begins to really permeate your mind, your heart, what begins to happen is you stop being cynical about Christianity. You stop deconstructing every little thing and every little person and every little experience and you go, I can rest. I can rest in what this says. I can rest in who Christ is. You, you, it quiets your soul. You begin to want the Lord and you, you begin to be willing to wait on the Lord. It says in verse 5, I waited for the Lord. My soul waits in His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Does anybody do this anymore? Wait for the Lord? We just read about politics and do work and make money and try to have comfortable life. Does anybody wait on the Lord anymore? So that we'll finally get out of this earth? <laughs> so we can finally go to our real home? Does anybody long for that anymore? Like a watchman waiting for the morning? Man. Have you ever tried to stay up all night? I thought about this this morning. Um... You know, you, you get into those early, early morning hours. You're holding your eyes open going, man, how long till the sun rises? Can I wait any longer? Can, can I make it to the morning? And in this context, we're talking about watchmen waiting for enemies that are coming. And you have to stay on watch at night because the enemy at night can approach without you knowing. And you've got to keep people up and awake and doing their shifts so you don't get attacked at night. But then when the sun rises, then you can go rest because you're not going to get a surprise attack. You know, I gave a technical definition of the church last week, um, but here's a simple definition of the church. The church is people who are waiting for the Lord and then helping each other wait for the Lord. That's what the church is. We know He's coming back to finish what He started, to fully and finally inaugurate His kingdom, which is, leads to this last 
portion of the Psalms of Ascent about Zion. Zion is where the resurrection is fully realized, where God and man fully and finally get to be together forever, all enemies put away. And and here's the literary clue that makes me realize and, and helps me understand Psalm 132, 133, and 134 is about heaven. It's about heaven. Psalm 132 verse 12 and verse 14 says forever. Psalm 133 3 says forevermore. Psalm 134, their worship is coming from Zion. They're there. They've reached Zion. They're worshiping in Zion. Zion is where God is. Zion is where God's people are with Him. And that's where all this is leading. Revelation 21 calls Zion the heavenly Jerusalem. And it says that uh, John saw on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That's where Zion is. And we should long for it. And let me just say this. and Here's the connection to Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. You don't get to Zion unless Jesus comes in the donkey into Jerusalem and inaugurates the Davidic kingdom. That's what these passages keep talking about. You read it later, he's talking about David, 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 David. Christ is in the lineage of David. Christ can rightly take David's throne, but take it forever. And until Christ is able to sit on that throne that kingdom is not going to be fully realized and we're not going to enter into it. And so, as we think about Holy Week Church, um, that Jesus didn't enter into Jerusalem to first take His royal seat. He entered into Jerusalem to die. To die. It is a very strange way to set up an eternal kingdom. But it was the only way He could take out all the enemies that are against His people. To dethrone Satan. To conquer death and sin. He had to enter into Jerusalem to do all of that work. Let's let's go to the Lord. Let's pray that this week the Lord sober us with these things and help us rejoice greatly in the work that He accomplished. Father, oh Lord, if You should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with You there is forgiveness that You may be feared. And so Father, as we come to this table, Lord, we know that forgiveness was purchased with Your blood and Your body. A perfect sacrifice for sin. Lord, would You sober our minds this week as we read about the passion of Christ, His suffering and His death. Lord, help us remember what You've done and how secure we are in that work. All our iniquities atoned for. So Lord, uh, encourage our hearts at the table and help us to go out from here giving glory to the Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.